Father, we invite you to speak to our hearts. You've promised that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We know that you're right here with us, but we want to hear your voice this morning. We want to be touched by you. We want to break down the barriers in our own hearts and allow you to break them down so that your love can permeate our hearts more deeply and transform us more completely. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. As he sat there that day by the crackling fire, I can only imagine some of the thoughts that were going through his mind. He looked a little disturbed. If you had seen him there, it had been a troubling evening. Maybe his face was looking down, just kind of looking at the coals. Have you ever sat by a campfire before and just kind of looked at the coals and seen the different pictures that the flames bring out? A lot of thoughts were racing through his mind as he contemplated what was going on in that fire pit. He was thinking about how to rescue himself, how to get himself out of the mess that he was in. He was still hanging on to just a little bit of confidence that maybe, just maybe he could get himself out of this mess. And the more that he thought about his own ability to be able to get himself out of that mess, the more that he began to despise another person. Somebody who had meant so much to him. Somebody who was very important to him. But the more that he thought, how can I escape? What can I do to deliver myself? The more he began to utterly despise that person. Look with me at the Gospel of Luke. One of the the four Gospels that tell us the stories of Jesus, and we're going to look specifically at a parable that Jesus tells to people who are despising others. Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, and I invite you to do something different today. Either look at the screen or pull out, we had a a nice generous donation, and we have brand new pew Bibles in front of you. Do you see that? You're welcome to pull one of those out and follow along from that. But Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, and we're going to read this story through. It's just a short parable that Jesus tells, but it helps us to engage with it. So this morning, we're going to try something different, and you're going to actually read out loud with me. Are you okay with that? All right, so look at the screen, look at the Bible, Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. You ready? Let's go. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? I am so sorry. This is a great story to read, but we're going to look at this one later on. Let's go back to verse 9. I apologize, right? That's a good one. And read it this afternoon because it's a fascinating story. But this one's going to be even better this morning. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, right? This, this fits in far more with what we're talking about, about despising others. Believe me. Luke chapter 18, and verse 9. Ready? One, two, three. Let's start again. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Such a powerful little story. Just a few verses here, and yet Jesus unpacks it for this beautiful and powerful promise that he who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. This is a principle that you can bank on for every part of your life. But this story unpacks this picture of what takes place in our heart when we begin to despise other people. Look at verse 9 again with me. Jesus spoke this parable because there were some people who were, what were they doing? What were these people doing? He spoke it to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Did you know that that is always the result of trusting in yourself? You begin to look down on other people around you. You begin to wonder, why can't they pull it together? I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. What's wrong with them? Why can't they figure out how to live a good life? Somehow I've done it and I wish they would too. This is the result of trusting in what we can do. Trusting in our own righteousness, our own capabilities. Jesus tells them this parable and says, two men went up to the temple to pray. Now I wanted to show you just a picture here because literally the, the, the city of David was down built below the temple mount. And I just wanted to show you some, a picture of some of the stairs that Jesus actually probably walked up himself. These are the stairs leading up to the southern gate. And you see that big high wall? That's not the temple. The temple, that's just the temple mount that King Herod the, the Great built. And it's this massive plateau. And on top of that is where the temple sat. So literally, they went up to the temple to pray. They're walking up these stairs to go to the temple. And both of these men are going there. And likely they're going there with many others. It's fascinating in Jerusalem. If you go there, uh, there's still people constantly praying. They're not praying on the temple mount anymore because you're not allowed to do that. But they're praying at the western wall, day in and day out. One of the tour guides who was there with us, he told us actually that he, when he was living in Jerusalem, he woke up intentionally at 3 a.m. and went to what's called the western wall, which is the edge of this temple mount, just to see if people were still praying there in the middle of the night. And he said, sure enough, there were actually people there at the wall still saying their prayers. People went consistently and constantly to the temple to pray. Specifically, they would go in the morning and the evening when the time of the morning and evening sacrifice. So these two men join the crowds as they're going up to the temple to pray. And one is a... And what is the other one? A Pharisee and a tax collector. Two opposites on the spectrum of Jewish social life. On the one hand, you have one who is holy and devout. One who has dedicated his life to God. One who follows the laws and teachings of Moses. One who teaches others to do the same. One who appears righteous. 
On the other hand, you have this tax collector. Why is he even coming to the temple? I mean, tax collectors, do they even really believe in God? Do they even believe that there's a coming Messiah? Because tax collectors were the ones who were going around and helping the Romans to get in the pockets of the Jewish citizens. They were the ones who were supporting this oppressive power. Why would he come to the temple and pray anyway? This might be what's running through the minds of people as Jesus is telling this story. Verse 11 continues, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice, he's pulled himself apart. It's about him praying and it's this idea of praying towards himself even. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Where are the Pharisee's eyes focused? On himself and on who else? Who? Others. He says, thank you that I am not like other men. He's looking around and he says, wow, you know what? God, thank you that you have changed my life. Now, I'll be honest, this thought has crossed my mind. God, thank you. I am so glad that I am not where I'm at before. And I look at the lives of my friends and I think, wow, it is good to follow God. Thank you. And this isn't saying that that is always wrong in order to rejoice in what God is doing in your life. But the problem is the focus of the Pharisee. His eyes are fixed on what other people are doing rather than on where they need to be fixed. And he goes on to say, extortioners. Now, is this a bad thing? When people are extorting money from others. Those of you who have experienced this are first to say, yes, this is a terrible thing. People are oppressive. Unjust. They're not giving justice to people. Adulterers. I mean, this list is, could have come straight from the Bible. These are, are things that God Himself says, hey, Stay away from this. And these people won't even inherit the kingdom of heaven. These are are clear things that are talked about in the Bible. Or even as this tax collector. Notice where his eyes are focused. He's looking on this guy over here and he's saying, man, and of all the people here, I mean, a lot of them are robbing people. They're sleeping around. They're, They're not just. And then there's this guy. He's supporting the Romans. God, I just thank you that I'm not like these people. Then he goes on to say, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Wait, hold on. So we know that in this story, what the end is, that that Jesus is going to say, okay, the Pharisee is not going to walk away being heard by God, being justified. So obviously, this is not something to emulate. And yet, didn't Jesus Himself say, when you fast? Didn't Jesus Himself say, you don't fast now while the bridegroom is with you, but when you fast? Doesn't the Bible have Isaiah 58 that talks about fasting? Is there anything wrong with fasting? Fasting is a beneficial thing. In fact, fasting teaches us to sense our need, our hunger for God. I encourage you, if you haven't, experience the blessing of fasting, try it out. Start with increments. Make sure you talk to your doctor first. But give it a try. 
Because as you go through a day and you're not eating, it gives you more time for prayer. And it, it gives you a chance to sense this hunger and this urgency in you, which you can redirect to say, God, I really need you. You can say like the psalmist, God, I thirst for you. I'm longing for you. I want more of you. But that's not really the purpose of this Pharisee. Because the Pharisees, they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And if you, well, they, they at least fasted, I believe it was on Thursday. But those who were extra pious, they fasted on two days out of the week. And what is his purpose in doing this? His purpose is to say, God, look at me. I should be gaining your favor. I have done these things so that you can love me more, so that you can look on me with favor, so that you can bless my life. And if that is why we do anything, we're in big trouble. Because God doesn't need His mind to be changed by what we can come up with. In fact, quite the opposite. God already loves you. God has already given Himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's longing to pour out blessings in your life. And these things are not for the purpose of gaining favor with God. How about what it says? It says to pay tithes. He said, I give tithes of all that I possess. A good Pharisee would even count the leaves on his mint and his cumin plant and see if there's every tenth leaf. Pull that off and make sure that you returned it. Jesus himself said, he said, you tithe the, the mint and the cumin and, and this you should do, he said. But you shouldn't, regret, you shouldn't neglect the greater things in the law. You shouldn't neglect mercy and justice. All of these things are, are vital, and yet, and there's a blessing from returning tithes, but there's a danger in going through a form and counting on that form. Can I even say this this morning? There's a danger in thinking, well, hey, I go to church every Sabbath. And I'm there and I, I return my tithes. I, go to, I even go to Sabbath school and I study my lesson and I, I know it for sure. And look at these people around me. They're not even studying their lesson. They're not even returning proper tithes. And, and pretty soon, we begin to feel something well up inside. And that leads to looking down on others, despising other people, and questioning what they are doing in their lives. But Jesus continues the story in verse 13. said, And the tax collector standing afar off. I mean, this guy, he doesn't want to get too close to people. They, they feel that purity is an important thing, and he realizes that. And so he's not even going to go close to the people. And he's standing afar off. And notice where his eyes are fixed. Okay? Where were the Pharisees' eyes fixed? On himself and on other people. But notice where his eyes are fixed. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. Why is that? What exactly does this mean? That he would not raise his eyes to heaven. Think about this. When you walk outside, do you look at the sun? How many of you stare at the sun? Okay, just making sure. So when you go outside, it's not a good idea to look at the sun. Why? Because it's so bright, it's so brilliant, it's so glorious that to look at it is more than you can handle. And this individual, rather than coming to God and telling Him all the good stuff that He's done, He says, 
God, and in just this little picture of where his eyes are, we recognize that he realizes there's something so beautiful and grand and glorious about who God is that he's humbled by it. That he, he can't even, I can't even look up to you because you are so awesome, God. You are so incredible. You are so amazing. This is what somehow has drawn this tax collector to come to the temple to pray. He recognizes that there is a good God in heaven, that there's a God who loves him. And this love is so glorious and so grand and so beautiful that he can barely even think of looking at it. Tax collector doesn't lift his eyes up to heaven. But he prays a simple prayer. And he says this, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me. I'm simply a sinner in need of a Savior. I love what it says in the book, Faith and Works, page 18. A great book that talks about salvation and And what about faith? What about works? How do these things work together in the process of salvation? It says this, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more, what? Earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Wow, that's pretty clear, isn't it? It's saying, hey, there is nothing more important. There's nothing to be the, that needs to be repeated more often. You don't need to understand anything more. You need to dwell on this. We don't dwell on it enough. That our good works can merit us absolutely nothing. It goes on to say, salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Friends, we cannot tell people this enough. We cannot help people see this enough. There is a free gift of salvation that is available for everyone in Christ Jesus, and we have got to help the world find this out. We've got to bring people to a realization of it. And when we see how good this gift is, when we see how beautiful it is, it can actually inspire us to pray a prayer like this. Think about it in the Old Testament. When people came in contact with God, what sort of result did it have on them? Think about the prophet Isaiah. When he saw the glory of the Lord in the temple, how did it impact him? It says that he was undone by it. He he was totally in awe of who Jesus was. And he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What about Daniel when he had that vision and he saw Jesus himself there? When he saw it, it says he fell on his face and his comeliness in him was turned to corruption. That means like any goodness that he had, when he saw how good God is, he said, man, I have got absolutely nothing. I have nothing to offer. Friends, Jesus told us this parable so that we will cling to and recognize that this is the only way of salvation. I have to sense my desperate need for God. And if I think back about my experiences in my life, if I go back to the first time that I began to have an experience with God, uh, and I began to realize that I had a need in my life, I began to say, you know what? I'm an angry person. 
I'm a person who's living in all these ways that's hurting other people. And what I need is love in my life. And I began to cry out to God to ask Him to help me. And you know what? God grew my experience by leaps and bounds during that time period. Think back yourself. Think back to the time when you were baptized, when you were first converted. Would you not say that your heart was on fire at that moment? Did you not experience the desire for more of God and a longing, a hungering for God? My question for myself today and for you today is do you feel the same way this morning? Do you feel you desperately need Jesus this morning? That you cannot get by in life without Him? That He's got to change your heart? Or do you feel kind of comfortable? Have you gotten set in some forms and kind of going through the motions? Because if I'm honest with myself, I need a renewed hunger for God this morning. I need to long for more. I need to to realize how good, how beautiful He is and to realize what He calls me to. Jesus is the one who said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He calls me to this beautiful and glorious experience that's represented in Jesus. The one who would go around to people and heal them. The one who would tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The one who would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The one that says, hey, if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you're going to be filled. The one who, when a mother had lost her son, raised him from the dead. Who went and raised Lazarus from the dead. The one who people followed because of the goodness that he displayed in his life. He said to us, if you believe in me, the works that I did, you will do also and greater works than these. Do I thirst and hunger for this experience in my life? Am I longing for God to do greater things? Do I have a hunger for God? And if I do not, if I find that my experience has flagged, that I have begun to not have the same passion that I had before, the Bible is clear. What I need to realize is I desperately need Jesus. I need Him more than anything else. And I have maybe begun to rely on the fact that I'm a regular tithe payer, that I'm a regular church attender, or something else in my life. I begin to look to those things for confidence rather than looking to Jesus Himself. Jesus isn't telling us to neglect these things, but He's telling us that we have to have a hunger for God, a thirst for God that surpasses anything else in our lives. We've got to be longing for Jesus. It's another place in Christ's object lessons. And by the way, when you leave today, if you, have not, if you don't have a copy of this book, Christ's Object Lessons, and you wonder sometimes about some parables or different things in the Bible, and you say, what exactly was Jesus meaning there? This is a great book that kind of steps through it step by step and that unpacks it to show some great pictures of what Jesus was bringing out in his parables. So I wanted to, to read to you something in particular from <clears throat> Christ's Object Lessons, page 159. It says this, In one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. We must behold Christ. It is ignorance of Him that makes men so uplifted in their own righteousness. So what was it for the Pharisee that that made him uplifted was the fact that he was looking at people, he was looking at himself, and he was not fixing his eyes on the beauty, the glory, the love of God. And as he realized 
man, I'm better than the people around me. He no longer had a sense of his need for God. And this, my friends, is the most deadly sin possible. Pride, a sense of self-confidence, is the worst possible thing that I can have in my life. Because a God of love who's longing to save me is going to be rejected time and time again. And this is what Revelation tells us will be the case with the last day church, that they will have Jesus knocking on the doors of their heart. That they'll say, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, when really they're wretched and miserable and poor and blind. A couple weeks ago, <clears throat> I went out with my nephews on a camping trip. You remember that I went to, to have a baptism for my, my nephew in the ocean. Well, the day when I first got there, my nephews could hardly contain themselves. As they came running up to me, they told me about, hey, you've got to go with us and go to this cave. There's this amazing cave that we tried to take mom into, and she only went so far. And then she said, no, you've got to get an uncle or a dad to go with you on this journey. So wait till they show up. And you're the first one here, so you've got to take us into this cave. So I said, okay, Sean, okay, Daniel, let's do that. So we begin to go up into this cave, and as we're going along, I pulled out my little cell phone, and there's a little flashlight app on it, you know, and I began to, to look for the way that I'm going and to kind of see, and then my little nephew, Sean, was thinking that he needed more light, so I was kind of letting him use the light, and we got a little further in, and they began to say, we need more light. We can't really see where we're going. I said, it's okay, guys. Just keep going. Let's keep going. And we got into this place where the, the walls were all caved in around us. And it was just like, you're just barely going through like this. And then we're, there's, there's this pile of brush in there. And we're trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to go over this? And, and my little nephew keeps saying, Uncle Zach, we just need to go back and get more light. We need to be able to see what we're, where we're going. I said, no, we're fine. Just, just, just be brave. Let's go. I'm trying to get through this. I'm going through it, and I'm brushing all up against the walls, and I can't really see. And finally, I said, okay, fine. Let's go back and get a little more light. So we go, and we go back, and we get some light. And then we come back with these flashlights. They're like, look it, we got all these flashlights. Okay, now we can do it. And as we're going in, we're going in with the flashlights. We get finally back to that little room, and as we crawl in there, I'm ahead of them because I say, I don't really need light. The more I'm in the dark, the more my eyes adjust to it, and I'll be perfectly fine. And, and I'm going, and I get to the same, and I'm bumping up against the brush pile again, and I'm bumping up against the walls, and then here they come behind me, and they're coming along, and all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, Uncle Zach, what is that? And I'll show you a picture of what it was. On the walls, all around me, were these creatures. I'll put another picture up, the next picture. And, and they look like gigantic spiders that I had just been brushing up against. They were all around me. And I thought, these things are all over me. My nephew just screamed, my littlest nephew. Get me out of here. <laughs> he didn't want to be in there any longer. And I was like, it's okay, it's okay, we're going to be okay. And we're trying to stumble over each other to get out of this cave as fast as we can. Because when we had more light, we suddenly realized... And we later realized, we counted their legs. They're actually not spiders, even though they look like gigantic spiders. They're called cave crickets. And they're big and gross and disgusting. And they were all over the place. And they were terrifying to us. But I didn't realize that when I didn't have enough light. And it's the same way in our lives. When we don't have enough light, when our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, when we haven't asked Him to reveal Himself to us in all of His beauty, we begin to feel okay. 
ah, just let's keep going. This is fine. Everything's all right. And we don't realize that maybe inside there's all of these problems, all of these issues that are really making us miss Jesus. And what we need is a knowledge of Jesus. What we need is to see more of him. Friends, are you hungering and thirsting for Jesus? And if you're not, please ask him to give you a hunger for him. Because if we don't have this, then we are just like this Pharisee. We're in a world of trouble. We'll walk out of church unjustified, unheard. Not because God is unwilling to hear. Not because he's unwilling to forgive. But because we're not really inviting him. We're not really opening our hearts. We're not really asking him to come in and transform us by his love. Something fascinating about this prayer. Look at what the tax collector prays again. As he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You would think that the word there for mercy is just the typical word for forgiveness, the typical word that's used throughout the New Testament in Greek for forgiveness. But it's actually not. It's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. This man, although he's a tax collector, has begun to see something about the system of salvation that the Pharisee did not understand. He began to realize that he needed somebody in his life, that he needed help in his life. Look at with me at Hebrews chapter 2. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, the other place where this word is used, after Paul has first of all told us about Jesus being the express image of the person of God, he's told us about the glory of who Jesus is in chapter 1, that he is God, and that we need not to doubt that. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us this amazing thing. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Just pause there. This is beautiful. Saying, the God of the universe, the creator, the one who's on his throne, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters. And that's talking about you. That he had to take on flesh just like you and I. That he might be a merciful, and this is the normal word for merciful. It talks about forgiveness for sins. A merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Right? So the word there, propitiation, or in the King James Version, reconciliation, there's debate about exactly how to translate this word. This is the word in Greek that the tax collector, standing in the temple, by himself, not even looking up to this beautiful and glorious God, he's saying, I need you to be my propitiation, my reconciliation. I need a Savior. I need somebody who's come down to where I'm at. Somebody that knows what I'm going through. Somebody that understands the temptations that I'm feeling in my life. I need a Savior. And friends, that's what we need today. We need to understand that that is who Jesus is. Just look at how the next verse continues. In verse 18, For in that He Himself has suffered, 
being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. This tells us the reason that we need a Savior. The reason that Jesus came in the incarnation and took on human flesh. The reason that he was, Hebrews 4 tells us, tempted in all points like as we are. Did you know that? Think about some of the strongest temptations you've ever had in your life. Think about how the enemy brings back certain temptations to you. Maybe it's a temptation for lust. Maybe it's a temptation to degrade your body in some way. Maybe it's a temptation to totally mistreat somebody. I don't know what the temptation might be for you. But the Bible tells us that he was made like us so that he could be tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He knows exactly what it feels like. He knows the draw. He knows the pool. He knows all of it except for the feeling of falling, which means he knows it better than you do because he's resisted it. We've talked about this before, but which is harder? To take that bench press of 300 pounds and actually lift the 300 pounds or to let it fall on you? Which takes more strength? Which fully experiences the weight of the 300 pounds? It's to actually lift it. And Jesus has lifted every temptation that you will ever go through in your life. And that is what the tax collector is saying that I need. I need propitiation. I need somebody who will step in, who will take it all for me and be a complete and full Savior. Friends, that's what we need this morning. We need, like the tax collector, to look up at Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I need a Savior. No matter where you're at, you may have been in this church for the past 70 years. This may be your first time walking into this church. Either way, nothing you can do will merit anything. What you need is a Savior who will pull you out of the mess, who will raise your life up, who will give you His righteousness so that you can actually live a life that is righteous, so that you can actually love the people around you, so that you can actually love God with all your heart because you cannot do it in your own strength. But in the strength of Jesus Christ, we can. So I don't know if you're at the place of saying, I'm going through these traditions and I'm good and I understand these things. Or maybe this morning you're thinking, I just don't have what it takes to be a Christian. I just can't do this. Or maybe you're thinking about that neighbor who says, I'm a good person. I don't need God. There's various ways in which this experience comes into our lives to block the love of God. But Jesus has come all the way down and He has provided a gift that is full and free of His righteousness which changes absolutely everything in our lives. And if we don't resist it, we will walk away filled. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be filled. At the end of this chapter, in Christ's object lesson, she recommends that we pray a simple prayer. Actually, before that, I wanted to read something from True Revival, page 35. This, This encapsulates the picture of reconciliation or propitiation reconciliation, the word that's used for propitiation in the New King James, means that every barrier between the soul and God is removed. 
We're going to be focusing over the next few weeks on removing those barriers between us and God so that we can really experience Him. And that the sinner realizes what the pardoning love of God means. Do you realize it for yourself? Do I realize it? Do I soak it in? Do I let it saturate every part of my life and transform me completely? Do I let that prayer be my prayer? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Christ's Object Lessons, page 159, recommends this prayer. Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is your property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. This is page 159. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. I just want to leave that on the screen and encourage you to think about this. Do you see yourself as unchristlike and weak? Then simply cry out to God to save you from that, to transform your heart. I want to invite you to pray that prayer and to think about this and to bow your heads as we listen to this song, and then we will find out what happened to the man by the crackling fire. Jesus turned and looked at Peter. You imagine that moment as their eyes connect across the mob, across the the fire, as he looks over and he sees Jesus, and as Jesus looks at him, what do you think Jesus' look portrayed to him? So he looked at him, it obviously wasn't condemnation. I told you so, you're done, Peter. But as he looked at him, he looked at him with compassion. He looked at him with love. He looked at him with sadness. And and as Peter recognized that the very one who was giving everything for him that he had just denied him, the Bible tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is the moment that changed everything for Peter. Like the, the, the tax collector in the temple God be merciful to me, a sinner. Peter finally recognized that he didn't have what it took. And after this prayer, when Peter went out and wept bitterly, God was able to transform him into one of the most powerful witnesses for him that the world had ever seen. So much so that people were saying the world was turned upside down by the apostles. So as we go out from here, May it be to see Jesus in all of His glory and His love. May it be that that we want that same look in our lives to realize that we have denied Jesus and that He's still looking at you with love and compassion. And He's still offering Himself to you to be your Savior this morning. May we go out sometimes to weep bitterly, so that he can turn our sorrow into joy. Jesus in the Mount of uh, Beatitudes went on to say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'd just like to put that prayer up on the screen again as we bow our heads in prayer. Just invite you to bow your head with me and to pray this prayer. Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. 
It is your property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for you. Save me in spite of myself, my weak and Christ-like self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. Oh God, this is our prayer this morning. And may it be our prayer every day and every hour. Lord, we need you. You're our one defense, our righteousness. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.